Well, my sermon title today is A Call to Everyone. February 19, 1519. Were any of you there? The Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez had sailed from Mexico with 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World. Yet Cortez conquered much of the South America continent. What made the difference this time? More men? More provisions? Knowing what to expect? Well, you may remember the story, but after landing, he issued an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing ordeal. Do you remember what it was? He burned the ships, all 11 of them. That was a bit of a game-changer, don't you think? So much for going home. We're going to make this work, or we're going to die trying. It was all or nothing. And as the men watched the ships burn, I imagine what they were thinking at that moment. Retreat no longer an option. You know, I reflect on that story, and I can't help but think of a portion of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. And you may recall in 1 Kings... Just a few chapters back, we have the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the drama that follows. But then the Lord appears to Elijah and he gives him some tasks. Three people he is to anoint. Two to be kings and one is Elisha says, you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. There in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16. But then we skip down to verse 19, and it says, so he departed from there, when 1 Kings 19, 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. Now, if you have twelve oxen, you're doing a whole lot better than the one that has one. As a farmer, he was doing quite well. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. His mantle was a symbol of the fact that he was a prophet of God. We see reference of that, of Samuel and others. And he takes off this mantle and he places it, it says, on Elisha. Verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will come follow you. Let me explain to them what you're asking of me and where I'm going. And he said to him, Go back again for what I have done to you. So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his 
servant. So Elisha takes all that he has, everything that is part of his business as a farmer, everything that he knows, everything that is comfortable for him, his old way of life, and he burns them. No turning back. No retreat. I'm not going to leave plan B open. I'm just going to go fully and commit fully to what God is calling me to do. He made a bold and decisive decision. And if you know much about Elisha, he asked for a double portion of Elijah's anointing. And if you study it out, there's twice as many miracles from Elisha as Elijah. Why do you suppose he was given a double portion? I wonder if it's as simple as because he simply asked. But it was a defining moment to burn what he had. Burn the ships, if you will. It reminds me of a tax collector who pledged to pay four times what he he had cheated Reminds me of the former prostitute who anointed Jesus with an extravagant alabaster jar. Or the fishermen that were to leave their nets and follow Jesus. It's not a matter of testing the waters, seeing if this will work, seeing if this will pan out. If not, I'll simply return to what I have. But it's a decisive decision. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, the Great Commission, we know it well. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Go and make disciples and baptize and teach and preach and minister. My question for us this morning is, in this great commission, have we as a church burned the ships? Have we burned the farming equipment? Or have we hedged our bets, only given part to the master, while we retain our comforts and what we like? Are we playing it safe? Turn with me now, and if you have your Bibles open still, to Matthew chapter 21. We're going through Christ object lessons in our prayer meeting time. And this was our story this last two weeks, actually. Matthew chapter 21, beginning verse 33, is the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Matthew chapter 21 beginning verse 33, and here we have a parable, really a parable of the church. So Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner, that's God, who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He's done everything possible to give it every spiritual advantage for bearing fruit. Make note. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. He gave the possession of his church to the priests, to the elders, to the overseers. And now in vintage time, verse 34, drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers. 
that they might receive its fruit. Lives changed, people transformed, right? And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, and stoned another. You ever heard of those churches that can't keep a pastor more than three months? Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, verse 37, then last of all, he sent his son. Who would that be? Saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, never mind the fact that they're beholding him now as they're listening to this parable. When the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. And then skipping down to verse 43. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, Jewish people, Jewish race, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Here you have a group of people given every spiritual advantage and they were to share God's light to the world. They were to produce fruit, fruits of holiness and unselfishness, of love and of goodness. God desired that their life be a life of praise, that the people would turn to God. Not by hearing denunciation of their idols, but by beholding something better. That's what it says in Christ's object lessons. By beholding something better. Not by condemnation. Not by saying you're wrong and I'm right. But by beholding something better. People were to see, oh, those Seventh-day Adventists, they're so kind. They're so friendly. They're so nice. They're so merciful. They're so obedient to the Lord. I just, anytime I'm in their presence, I just, something feels different. They're just so wonderful to be around. They have something better than I have, and I want it. That was the idea. To be drawn to something better. Powerful witness, by the way. How many of us witness with scowls on our faces? You know Jesus loves you. You should go to our church. It's incredible. Has God blessed you? Has he given something that you can praise him for? Christ's object lesson also uses a a, a two-word, well, there's a phrase, but two words, that God would be glorified through tangible service. I like that, tangible service. You can can touch it, you you can feel it, maybe you can taste it. It's tangible. It's practical. Tangible service. 
that every gift to be employed was to do two things, to advance his kingdom and bring glory to his name. Those two things, every gift, and every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above, to do what two things? To advance his kingdom and to bring glory to God. Do you see anybody in the world today with gifts that aren't doing those two things with those gifts? Heaven forbid, is anybody in the church taking God's gifts and doing something other than those two things, advancing the kingdom and bringing glory to his name. When it talks about this group in this parable, it says the church used his gifts, God's gifts, to gratify themselves. That's what we see out in the world, isn't it? But it had crept into the church too. It says they became greedy and selfish and they neglected opportunities. Seventh-day Adventist church, what opportunities do we have? How long will we have those opportunities? Will a point in time come when we will say we have neglected those opportunities? It was so easy before we could just say it. We could just go and knock on their door. We could just talk about it in the workplace. We could just dot, dot, dot. It goes on and on. It was so easy. We had opportunities, but we didn't advance on them. And then I have to read you this section from Christ's Object Lessons. It comes from page 303 and 304. It says, men are in peril. Multitudes are perishing. Is that happening today? But how few of the professed followers of Christ are burdened for their souls. How many of you woke up this morning with a burden for souls? Before you could even get out of bed, you had to pray because your burden was so great for souls. Do we have burdens for souls? Or do we have burdens for, well, I wonder when Sabbath's over so I can get to this other activity. I wonder how we're going to afford this trip. I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder how that's going to go. Lord, I pray that everything will go well. Do we have a burden for souls? It says there is a stupor, a paralysis upon the people of God which prevents them from understanding the duty of the hour. Are we paralyzed? Do we recognize the duty of the hour? Because if we are just like this church of old, history that doesn't remember, what does it do? It dooms, it's doomed to repeat itself. When the Israelites entered Canaan, she says they did not fulfill God's purpose by taking possession of the whole land, but after making a partial conquest, they settled down to enjoy the fruit of their victories. Think back. We just had our Adventist heritage emphasis this last fall. I know it's been a little while ago, but think of the, the ways that people sacrificed for the cause, gave up for the cause, gave all for the cause. I was just up at Andrews, and we went jogging. We took our picture with J.N. Andrews. You know what I mean, right? The statue out in front of Pioneer Memorial and his kids, and I, we're on our little bikes, and I explained to the kids what they gave up and how uh, the girl passed away from a fever and all the... I mean, they, they gave and gave and gave to the cause. But now that we have a corner of the world, a piece, a part, we've conquered in some, have we as a Seventh-day Adventist church settled down to enjoy? 
the fruit of our victories. Oh, we have nice churches. We have nice schools. We have nice hospitals. Oh, I love our Christian bookstores. I could just go shopping there for hours. I love listening to our radio stations and 3ABN and Hope Channel. They play all the time. I love Camp Me and our summer camp. I love veggie meats. I love when they go on sale. I just love all the benefits. And don't get me wrong, there's benefits, believe me. But is it our duty just to sit back and enjoy the benefits? In their unbelief and love of ease, they congregated in the portions already conquered instead of pushing forward to occupy new territory. Maybe we should do a church plant. Oh, I don't want to do that. That would be so inconvenient. My friends aren't going to be there. That's a little bit farther for me to drive. I just love this church. Thus they began to depart from God, she says. By their failure to carry out his purpose, they made it impossible for him to fulfill to them his promise of blessing. Is not the church of today doing the same thing? With the whole world before them in need of the gospel, professed Christians congregate where they themselves can enjoy gospel privileges. They do not feel the necessity of occupying new territory, carrying the message of salvation into regions beyond. They refuse to fulfill Christ's commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Are they less guilty than was the Jewish church? Friends, those are scathing words. Those are scathing words for me. They professed followers of Christ are on trial before the heavenly universe, but the coldness of their zeal and the feebleness of their efforts in God's service mark them as unfaithful. So here's my name, David Wright. But there's coldness. He's lost his zeal, his pep, his commitment. He's back in the easy chair. He goes to Dr. Kim's Daniel fast and goes home and eats mint chocolate chip ice cream. He gets his sermons off the internet. He has somebody else do the Bible studies. You know, you get the idea. He's sitting back in his easy chair. His zeal is missing. And because of his feebleness of his efforts, feebleness, does God know what we can do? Does he? Does he know what we're capable of by his Holy Spirit and by his power and by his grace? Absolutely. But we settle. We put our feet up. Oh, those, those days of, of having to, to give all and, you know, those were rough times. Sure glad we don't live then. And so because of my lack of zeal, because of my lack of effort, by my name, there's a mark, it says, that says unfaithful. Unfaithful. But I'm here I'm preaching, I'm teaching, I'm here, unfaithful. Where's your zeal? If they were doing the best they could, condemnation would not rest upon them, but where their hearts enlisted in the work, they could do much more. But the heart's not enlisted in the work. The heart's kind of checked out. In fact, we've realized that this isn't just a sprint, 
It's a marathon, and, and really, we, we tell our new converts, you know, you need to calm down, you need to calm down, because this is a marathon, and if you run that hard, you're going to burn out. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. We need to be balanced. There is such a thing as burnout, but the opposite is true too, right? There's a ditch on both sides of the road. The opposite of pushing too hard is not pushing at all, or at least not much. We'll do the minimum requirement, like the student in the class. What's the lowest grade I can get in this class and still graduate? That's what every teacher loves to hear, right? Is there heart in it? Not at all. They know and the world knows that they have a great, to a great degree lost the spirit of self-denial and cross-bearing. Many there are against whose names will be found written in the books of heaven, not producers, but consumers. Wow. So there next to my name could be unfaithful, checked. And there could also be not producer, not producing, just consuming. Give me all the benefits. I'll enjoy everything, but don't ask me to give too much. Have we lost heart? Could any of those things be written by your name? Are we, in fact, the Laodicean church? Could it be that our church has lost its vision? That we've lost our drive, this sense of urgency, the burden of souls? Could we have lost those things? I'm afraid as a church, especially in North America, we stand and stare from a distance, satisfied with superficiality. We just stand and look. You know, it's summertime. People are going to national parks, and you've been to these national parks too, many of you. And there are people in the Valley of Yosemite that they just come, they're showered, their clothes are pressed, they hop out of their car, they go click, click, click. Then there are some, like my wife and I did when she was pregnant with Lauren. She says, we're going to climb to the top of Yosemite. I said, we're going to do what? I said, you're pregnant. She says, that's okay, we're going to train. I said, we don't even have proper footwear. We just have these these open-toed chacos. She says, no problem. We'll just train and our feet will get tough. Okay. So that's what we started to do during field school. And after field school, we hiked to the top of Half Dome. We got up at like 4.30, I think. We were on the trail by 5. We were hiking, hiking, hiking. It's almost a mile vertically to get up there, but it took us, I don't know. By the time we got back, it was probably 8.30 at night. After a full day of hiking, we only spent about an hour at the top. And if any of you have done that, there's those cables, and you pick from the, the glove pile there, and you go up, and there are these two-by-fours, and you're just on this massive face, and then you finally get to the top, there's all these warning signs. You know, people die every year from lightning strikes, and storms come out of nowhere, and yeah, 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 not today, you know, and you're going up and up and up and up, and you peer over the edge, you belly up over to the edge, and it's like a mile down there. Why do boys do these things? <laughs> oh, now I see how long it took to get down there. I will never look at a picture of Half Dome and Yosemite the same again. 
because I don't have this superficial outsider's view and a camera that just went click, click. And we came back, we were exhausted, we were sore, we were tired, we were dirty, we were smelly, we were stinky, but we had experienced it firsthand and we loved it. Some of you may have been to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. That's another one. People come, step out of their car, clean pressed, click, click. This is so nice, so impressive. If you want to experience it, you go all the way down to the river and go up to the other side. But most that go to the Grand Canyon are rim huggers. Are you with me? They're rim huggers. Have we in North America become rim huggers? We don't want to experience it firsthand. We don't want to get dirty. We don't want to sacrifice too much. Heaven forbid we could be sore. But we go click, click. Here's where I went. Isn't that nice? Oh, yeah, the lighting there is perfect. I just love that picture. Have we become superficial in the church? My friends, I would submit to you, we cannot become satisfied with superficial work. The time doesn't allow it. And what's more exciting anyway? To see something take place over there or be in the middle of it? To see somebody brought for baptism or to know? Yes, the Holy Spirit convicts the heart, but the Holy Spirit used me in this process. There's nothing more exciting than that. But we Facebook more than we seek his face. We follow the news more than we follow the Savior. We text more than we study the text. We are transfixed with iPhones and iPad more than the I am. We want joy without sacrifice. We want character without suffering. We want success without failure. We want gain without pain. We want testimony without a test. We want it all without giving anything. But friends, the Seventh-day Adventists, I believe we are not just another denomination, not just another choice in the phone book. We are the remnant church of Bible prophecy, and I believe that means we have a life and death message for this time. The world needs to hear it. They need to see something in us, something that is better than what's out there. Something that they don't have, but that they want. Last summer, the World Church started talking about, or the World Church leadership, this idea of TMI. Too much information? No. Total member involvement. Total member involvement. Every member doing something for Jesus. Well, what's the something? That's for you to figure out. That's for you to go pray about. But every member involved, total member involvement, doing something for Jesus, for pastors and lay members to be re-energized in their local church through revival and reformation, all through the Holy Spirit's power to become involved in total member involvement. Evangelistic reach, outreach to communities, Things like literature distribution, health outreach, community service, centers of influence, youth outreach, media outreach, Bible studies, personal witness, public evangelism, and many other ways. Total member involvement, TMI. Every member doing something. It's kind of like the Romans 12, 6 to 8. Is your gift prophecy? Then prophesy. 
If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then encourage. If it's giving, then give. If it's leading, then do it diligently. If it's showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. If you don't get the point by now, whatever it is, do it. Every member, do something for Jesus. Total member involvement. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Each pastor, each teacher, each prophet. No, to everybody. All of us, when we're baptized, have a work to do. I was talking to Pastor Hyman about this, and he said uh, he heard an illustration where when you go to shop for a car, well, does this car have this feature and that feature and the other feature and all these other things? But you never hear somebody go to a dealership and say, does this car come with tires? Does this car have an engine? It's standard. I'm at a dealership. I'm expecting a car. When you're baptized, are you going to witness? Is that one of the things on the menu or is it standard? Like the wheels on the car. Every member. Volume 2 of the Testimony, 631 632, says, Every follower of Christ. How many? Every follower of Christ has a work to do as a missionary of Christ in the family, in the neighborhood, in the town or city where he or she lives. Every member. And I would submit to you, you already know the people God wants you to work on. More often than not, that's the case. All who are consecrated to God are channels of light. God makes them instruments of righteousness to communicate to others the light of truth and the riches of his grace, end quote. God will empower you, but it's all of our responsibility to do. Now, the last thing I want to tell you that I don't want to tell you is watch the news. It's terrible. Don't feed on it. If you live alone and the house is quiet, find something else to cycle through all the time to fill, fill the house with noise, but don't let it be news. Because I submit to you, there is nothing being reported in the news that's going to build up your character. Nothing's making you more like Christ. And by beholding, we become hardened, slash changed. But turn it on just for that much. Just long enough to know that we live in perilous times. Like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. You can't keep up. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming, friends, when we can work no more. This calls for total member involvement, and the time is now. Instability is felt in nearly every area of life, socially, politically, financially, environmentally. No one knows what to expect next, nor can we predict how crazy the news will be tomorrow. No disrespect, but no Hillary Clinton and no Donald Trump are going to fix the problems. Christ alone is the answer to the problems of this world. Every follower of Jesus has a work to do as a missionary of Christ. Volume 9 of the Testimonies, 117, it says, The work of God in this earth can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. End quote. Did you hear what happened in Rwanda just this past year? 
How many of you were at camp meeting and heard the report? Oh, not enough. Let me tell you. They implemented this idea and pushed this idea. Total member involvement, total member involvement. Everybody has something to do for Jesus. What am I going to do? What are you going to do? We're all doing something. So they studied the Bible with neighbors. They went door to door. They repaired people's homes, distributed food and clothing, set up free medical and health clinics. And no member felt burdened by it but wanted to be involved because everybody was involved. And everyone with the same goal, reach one to bring one. I mean, you don't have to know everything. Honestly, you don't have to know much of anything. Man, that sounds really heavy. I don't have the answer for you, but I know somebody who could help us. Can I go with you? Who can't do that? Right? So they had 2,227 sites across the country of Rwanda. Did you hear that? 2,227. 98 of those came from the general conference. The president of South Rwanda Field had a member tell him in astonishment, the general conference people, this is a quote, used to come to Rwanda Union for church business meetings, but now they've come only for evangelism? They were astounded. Others from the local division, people also came from Canada and France, the United States, and of course, most of them came from Rwanda, 2,227 sites. There was a 12-year-old boy, I had to tell you about, Dylan Smith. He was going to go with his mom to preach to the kids beforehand, and, and oftentimes you hear all these things about what's going to happen when you get there, and when you actually arrive, it's a bit different. And there wasn't time for both him to do his thing for the young people and then his mother to follow up for the, the adults. And so the person in charge of that area, that site, said, we really only have time for one of you, and we really think Dylan is doing a fa fabulous job. Can we just let him keep going? 12 years old. He says, I'm not so sure about this. At his site, 1,000 people. Amen. And so 12-year-old Dylan stands up in his Pathfinder uniform and preaches his heart out night after night after night, and people come and people are making decisions. Total member involvement. One woman from Canada who lost relatives in the genocide back in 1994 made the decision to preach at a site. So she's coming from Canada, she's going to Rwanda, and she says, I still had this bitterness, this, this unforgiven part of me. And she said, I just tolerated the people. But then one night a man came and he said, please forgive me. And she says, I don't know you, I don't recognize you, you don't have to ask forgiveness, everything's fine. And he says, no, forgive me. He says, 22 years ago, I killed people like you. And the two of them talked, and she forgave him, and they both wept and cried. And he was restored, and she was fully restored. It helped her purge her of her anger and her bitterness. Another side, Andrew McChesney, night after night, every time he mentioned the devil or the power of the devil or any, the choices that you could make for good or for evil, any time he talked about the evil side, the power would go out. And they didn't realize what was happening until one particular night, every time he made this statement about you can follow God and do it his way, or you can follow the devil and do it his way. Boom, power went down, slides went down, everything went down. Choir starts to sing, praises to God. They decide to have a prayer and try and have, cast the demons out of this place. Power is restored. Go through the whole process again, and it comes to the same line again. You can choose God or you can choose the devil. Boom, power goes out again. 
Singing again, prayer again. Third time, power goes out until finally they pray and pray and pray. And now when they get to that part, the power stays on. God was working. So as a result, 168 were baptized from that one side of Andrews, by the way. Overall, in May of this year, 97,344 were baptized in Rwanda. Total member involvement. 97,000. The record was the year prior with 30,000 in with Zimbabwe. 30,000, 97,000. God is doing something. And since then, they have continued to follow up with people. It's over 100,000 people have been baptized as a result. I believe Jesus is coming soon. What are we going to wait for? What's going to have to happen to wake us up to be totally and fully committed and involved? I know we're in North America. So what? The Holy Spirit comes to North America too. People need Jesus in North America too. Right here in Hendersonville, right on your street. What a time to be alive. What could happen? What would it look like? What do you suppose God wants to do right here in Henderson County? And what are we waiting for? Every member can do something for Jesus. Romans 10, 13 to 15. Krista shared it with us last week. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him? of whom they have not heard. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Hendersonville Seventh-day Adventist Church, are you willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Intangible acts of service to those around you. Will you ask Jesus to give you a burden for souls? Because I don't believe it can continue on as business as usual. Retreat is not an option. We need to burn the ships. There's no turning back. Our commitment to Christ requires all of us to do something for Jesus. To hold nothing back but to give God our all. And this isn't a call for an active few. But every member doing something. Total member involvement. Dear Heavenly Father. We ask that you will forgive us of our complacency. Forgive us for our lack of zeal. Grant us your Holy Spirit. Give us power from on high to see the opportunities that lie before us and to move forward by your grace, by your power, by your strength, and by your Holy Spirit that every member here can be involved in sharing Jesus with someone. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.